So uh, just by way of kind of give you a little capsule of what we did. There's our group uh, right at the base of the Mount of Olives overlooking uh, the Temple Mount and the old city of Jerusalem. And of course you see the uh, Dome of the Rock there. Uh, one of the most famous uh, iconic structures in, in Israel. And uh, here we are at Caesarea, setting up for a Bible class. Uh, that's Caesarea Maritima, where Paul was in prison for several years. This is where Cornelius lived. Uh, and here we go. There's our class setting up, like we said, up here this, in the morning. And here I am teaching in that arena where actually Christians at one time were persecuted and, thrown, and, and killed. Uh, now this was, we, our, our range went from 78 years old to two months old. And they said that this little guy had a, a lifetime ambition to go visit Israel, so he came. <laughs> uh, here he is at the steps of the temple of Jerusalem. Those are the original steps on the southern mount, and we're having a baby dedication. And uh, here's his response. You see the yarmulke, but you can't see. We were able to find a little uh, Israeli prayer shawl with the talis on, you know, you can't see it that well. So, okay. Um, like I say, one time when it's appropriate, I'll put some of these photos together and uh, look at uh, how going there really brings things alive when you see the circumstances 2,000, 3,000 years ago and how it has application to our life today. It's just really pretty incredible. So here we are, uh, continuing our study in the book of Isaiah. And this is the famous chapter of Isaiah 6. And um, so what is going on? What is the, uh, what, what's the setting here? I mean, what, the year is approximately what? When uh, Isaiah is, is doing this ministry he has. It's approximately, um, he's in this range here, about 730 B.C. That's important because in 722, you have the fall of the, ten, of, the, of the north, northern Israel, or the ten tribes. And who would overtake them? Do you remember? Who comes down? Assyria. Assyria. Mary And we were right up in that range, up in Shiloh and beyond there. The river, they must have come over the hills and they just scorched earth and they took so Many of them to Assyria never return, and of course that would become the region of Samaria and all that happened there. And then, of course, in 586 will be the famous uh, the fall of uh, uh, what we would call Judah or the southern kingdom. Jerusalem will be sacked, the temple is destroyed, and the Babylonians uh, taken away. So that's kind of the time frame we're in right, right here. Uh, and so, what is Isaiah's main message? What is he? What's his? What's he bringing across, or what is he trying to deliver to the people? It's a recurrent message in the book of, in the in the Old Testament. Get right with the Lord. Were the Jewish people religious? Yeah, they were extremely religious. We saw that in chapter one and two. They they had the temple, they had the priesthood, they had the sacrifices. Everything's going on, but what weren't they? They weren't righteous. See, they had high religion, you know, very active in religion. But in terms of righteousness, they were mistreating the poor. They were mistreating the widows. There was no sense of justice. They were getting involved more and more uh, with occultic uh, practices, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, idolatry. All of these kinds of things were coming in. And so Isaiah comes on the scene basically uh, to pronounce uh, a coming judgment. And not even necessarily for the north, because the north is just about ready to, be, to go under. But he's coming and trying to reach that southern kingdom, which we would call the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And of course, that's where Jerusalem is. So we pick it up here in um, Isaiah chapter 6. It says, in, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and his train uh, of his robe filled the temple. And... Interesting, what was another name for Uzziah? Do you remember? Azariah. Azariah. And, and this name will be used interchangeably. But in a sense, he was a pretty good king. I mean, if you go back to 2 Kings uh, chapter 13. I'm sorry, chapter 15. Uh, 2 Kings 
of chapter 15. It gives you a little kind of a snapshot of this guy's uh, life and reign. 2 Kings chapter 15. And here we see, um, let me get there real quick. It says, okay, uh, verse 1. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, that's the north, Azariah, the son of Ammonites, king of Judah, south, became king. He was 16 year old, years old when he became a king. Remember one of the judgments Isaiah said is you're going to have youthful leaders. You know, this, and he says, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Jechaliah and, uh, of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father, Amaziah, had taught, had taught him. So he's learned well, and he's doing what was right, except that the high places were not removed. What does high places often signify? Idols. They want high ground. You know, they believe ever since the Tower of Babel, a man in his pride seeks high ground to put his idols up there to be lifted up. Uh, even when we come to this description of Lucifer or Satan in Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, he says, I will ascend to the sides of the north. I will go higher. I will. Pride lifts up, uh, literally. And the pagan shrines, I remember going through Thailand and parts of Southeast Asia, you see some of the most famous temples and idols would be on a high hill. One of the reasons is the people, all the people could see it continually no matter where they went. And that's where they'd have uh, altars or they do, in, you know, groves or human sacrifice. And it says, uh, except the high places uh, were not moved. And the people still sacrifice and burn incense. On, so they, they have a right religious system and then they've incorporated uh, this other false belief systems. What's that called? Do you know the term for that? You have you have syncretism. syncretism. Is it? Do you, do you know? Is that going on today? Or can you give an example? How many been to South America? How many been to Guatemala? Or in the, have you seen syncretism there? If so, how? It's it's one thing for it's one thing for pagans to have idols in the altar. It's when we profess to be Christian and following the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ and one God, but then we bring in totems, sacred uh, amulets, symbols, practices, rituals. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's a big uh, uh, spirit that in Guatemala is, is it, where was it? Guatemala, they, they revered the shrine of who? Was it Santeria? We did, that's in Dominican Republic, and that's in the same kind of a thing, but it comes into the church, so the people will go to church on Sunday and, you know, profess belief. I'm not judging if they're believers or not, but then they have these other things going on. It's like somebody today professes to be a Christian, but is really involved in astrology in their daily lives. Does that make sense? It's this syncretic. It's very, and that's what's going on here. And he says, uh, now the rest of the Acts of Isaiah and all that are written in the book and the Chronicles. And then it says, then he rested uh, with his fathers. But one thing he does wrong, I mean, he does many things right and many things wrong. But verse 5 says, I mean, verse 4, except that the high places were not removed. Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. And so uh, he dwelt in an isolated house. And that kind of is the end of this guy. So uh, if you do more research on him, you'll find out he actually wanted to go into the temple and offer incense. So he's, he's doing things right, he's doing things wrong. It gets him into a lot of trouble. Although his life started out well. It says that. He, 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 did, he walked right in the eyes of the Lord, but he drifted. So coming back here to Isaiah chapter 6, that's the setup here. He's gone, and it, it shows that even though the king is gone... Uh, the throne is vacated, and then it's, it, a new person emerges out there. It says, but, <laughs> that throne might be empty, but what throne is not empty in verse 1? The, Lord. uh, the Lord's throne. I see the Lord. He is high and lifted up. This idea that, uh, as the song says, kingdom kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that. That God is still on his throne. 
that God is still in control. Even though the kings come, the kings vacate that, presidents, prime ministers, whatever, God is in control. He is still on his throne. And this is this famous vision that Isaiah is going to get here. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of uh, his robe filled the temple. Above it stood a seraphim, each one had six wings. Uh, with, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and, two, and then he, the two he flew with. So this, this is the only mention of seraphim in the scripture. There's other uh, angelic beings recognized, but this one is uh, unique. And it's suggested here that they, they're in God's presence, but they're, they're, all they do is, is like shout, holy, holy, holy. And seraphim, if you take the translation, it means burning ones or uh, fiery ones. It has this kind of connotation. But if you hold your place here and turn to Ezekiel uh, chapter 1, just a couple uh, books uh, down the road here. Uh, it's very s similar where... Um, he is going to catch this, he, he is going to see this uh, vision also. Uh, look at verse 4, he says, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 4, he says, Then I looked and behold a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud, raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, radiated, and from it, within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces. Each one had four wings. The legs were straight. So he also sees some kind of angelic beings surrounding the throne of God. You'll, you'll see this also in the book of Revelation. Uh, their hands of a man were under their wings. Their four sides. Their wings touched one another. Uh, and so what you get is, is every now and then God reveals. He pulls the curtain and you, you kind of catch this glimpse of heaven, you know, what it might look like. Who else caught that kind of a glimpse? John. And he sees in high detail. And he'll describe the altar, he'll describe the throne, he'll describe living creatures around it. So they have a certain consistency. Although God doesn't reveal, reveal a lot about it, we can deduce, you know, there's, you know, there's this shimmering sea of glass, so to speak, with lightnings and thunder underneath it. There's this incense going on. There's these angelic beings. There's throne. And when you come to the tabernacle in the wilderness, it's built like a little model, like a little, you know, scaled-down model of some of those heavenly structures. Does that make sense? So if you understand the tabernacle, which will later become the temple when they get into uh, Zion, the promised land, there's a lot of similarities with this, with that. And the writer of the Hebrews makes a big deal of that because he says this was built like a model of what's in the heavens. Any thoughts on this? It really kind of starts showing you the structure of how this scripture is put together. And this really is big time stuff. When Jesus comes and it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, tabernacled, and he stands in front of that temple, he says, destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. So he, we'll go through this whole thing with the temple as we get further into Isaiah. And we're going to see how Jesus even fulfills some of the uh, functions of the temple. There was only one door into the temple. There's only one door into the heavens. You see, there's only one labor. You know, Jesus says, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. You go into the holy place, there's the showbread. Jesus says, I am the bread of the world. On the other side, the left-hand side was the menorah, the seven candlestick. Jesus says, I am the light of So we'll get into that in more detail down the road, but not today. Uh, any thoughts on any of this? We're just kind of coming back onto class here. Okay, so he sees this. Ezekiel also sees this. Their wings were stretched. Notice verse 11. Thus were, uh, were their faces, their wings stretched upward. Two wings of each were touched one to another, and two covered their bodies. So you got these angelic, and their two wings touched like that. Where do you see that? Where, huh? The Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim, and there, here's the mercy seat here, and the cherubim are just touching, and it says, God says, I dwell between the cherubim, you know, in the Holy of Holies. It's a very consistent uh, how God reveals this kind of stuff to us. Okay. Um, so he talks about the revelation he gets back. I don't want to get into Ezekiel too much. It will take us off track. Okay, so <laughs> too much. 
Okay, Ezekiel back to Isaiah. He says here, um, his train filled the temple. What could this could mean is the light, the sweep of the light. Uh, you remember when Moses says, uh, I want to see you, Lord. I want to see your presence. What did God do? He, he put him where? In the cleft of the rock. He says, you can't take, basically he says, you can't take the full glory of God. But what does he let him see? Huh? The backside, the train, you know, just the, just the limited vision. Human beings can't really handle full on uh, the, uh, the glory of God, the brightness of God, you see? That's why when he reveals himself to his holy prophets, like Isaiah, to Daniel, to John, Revelation 1, what happens to those holy men when God just starts to reveal, huh? They're undone. You know, Daniel says, my knees quake together. John falls on the ground. And these are holy men of God. But it's just you can't take the intensity of God's brightness and magnificence all at once. You know, like when we're in Israel or something, you, you can't put your cell phone or your radio in a regular socket. You know, you got to ratchet that thing down from a 220 to a 110. I know it happened to me once in Thailand. I had a tape recorder and a radio. And I think that thing lasted about three seconds. You know, just too much power. You, know, you need a transformer. Um, I think that's one of the reasons we need a resurrected body. It's my theory. But I mean, I think it's consistent with scriptures. Is to be in God's presence, I, I think we requ require new uh, instruments, so to speak, to stay in his presence. Okay, so he says here, Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings and two covered his face. Very similar to Ezekiel. Uh, the two covered his feet. And then he says, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now they repeat it three times. Holy, holy, holy. You'll see it here in the Old Testament. We'll see it in the New Testament in a minute. You do not see this phrase. This is what is, theologians believe is the chief attribute of God. He's got many attributes. Mercy, love, uh, compassion, uh, all of these kinds of things. But it seems like his, the starting point, in a sense, is his holiness. And that's why it's repeated three times here. You never see it says, God is love, love, love. You see, you don't have a scripture, or God is mercy, mercy, mercy. But you do see this when the, a, a prophet of God catches that vision and hears those voices. You see this idea, holy, holy, holy. And in Hebrew literature, repetition uh, amplifies the uh, importance of the concept. Okay? Boom, boom. And if you turn to Revelation 4, you see this same thing when John uh, gets a glimpse of heaven. Very similar here to uh, Isaiah. But in uh, Revelation chapter 4, um, he, he sees the throne room of God. Okay, we know it, it says in verse 1, he's caught up. He's, he's somehow in the spirit here. He's in the heavenlies. He sees the throne of God. And then it says, um, maybe somebody could read verse, um, verse 8, please, and 9. Okay, you see Isaiah, John, separated by 700 years, both catch a glimpse of God's throne room, both see God on this throne as much as they can see this, both see these living creatures, these kind of strange angelic beings, but both see, hear these angelic beings crying out, holy, holy, holy. See that consistency of, of what they're getting here. Um, again, it's like you want to understand God, you start with his holiness. You start with his holiness. That is, uh, let me see if I have a working definition of this holiness of God. Uh, here it is, in the year that I saw the Lord. So this dates us. I think that was Isaiah, uh, Uzziah dies in 7, 730. Uh, I saw the Lord sitting up on the throne high and lifted up. And here's the definition, just a short definition. Holiness is a state of purity or integrity of moral character. Freedom from sin, sanctity, separate. 
applied to supreme being, holiness denotes perfect purity or integrity of moral character, one of his essential attributes, maybe his main, uh, who is like the uh, glorious in holiness. You see, is, holiness means separate from, separate. Everything else is separate. That's why when Moses encounters the burning bush, what's the first thing God says out of the burning bush to Moses? Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. You see, it's that distinct uh, separateness. And that's what Isaiah is seeing here. That's the start of his vision. It, um, it says, holy, holy, back to Isaiah. It says, um, the earth is full of his glory, and the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So you can imagine the, I don't know, you know, if, you, if you're going to, if you're Steven Spielberg and you're trying to script this thing, you know, the special effects, it's just over, overpowering him. And then the things, everything starts shaking. And look what he says. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. When you encounter the holiness of God, what does one recognize about self? Huh? Yeah, you know, it's this idea. <clears throat> Do you remember the first time, uh, one of the first times Peter encounters Jesus? Remember, Jesus says, lower down those nets, catch this fish. It's early on in the Gospels. And he realizes the power of Jesus, who Jesus is. And do you remember what he says? He says, well, let, let's look at this. It's in, um, let's see if I can pick this up real quick. But it's the idea that he's very conscious of the fact that he is not right. Um, with God. And look at, um, look, let's turn to Luke chapter 5, verse 8 for a minute. Luke chapter 5. Um, it's here that uh, this is an early miracle of a, draw, a catch of fish. Uh, Luke chapter 5, um, verse 4. They haven't caught anything all night. And he says, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon Peter said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was almost broken. And they, they said to their partners, come and help us. Look at Peter's response in verse 8. Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying what? Depart from me, why? I am a sinful man. So any exposure to the holiness of God reveals our sinfulness, which is not a bad thing, we're going to see with Isaiah, but because it can lead to repentance, acknowledgement, confession, restoration, forgiveness, you see. But that, that's a very important thing. <clears throat> and it's rather consistent in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Any thoughts on this as we move forward? But it's that you, you, you catch a glimpse of God and you kind of catch the, the sinfulness. And this is very similar what we see the psalmist do in 72. This is a remarkable uh, uh, verse for people going through difficult times of, of doubt or depression or uh, uncertainty. If you look at Psalm 72, he has a very similar encounter. Um, I'm sorry, Psalm 73. Uh, very similar to Isaiah, very similar to what happened with Peter, where he says, verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, and such that have a pure heart. 73, verse 1 and 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly sinned. This guy's a worship leader. He's high in ministry in ancient Israel, right? But he's saying, it's not working for me. He says, uh, I look at the wicked. He goes through this whole thing. He says, Verse 3, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They don't have any fear of death. They have strength. They're not troubled like other men. Therefore, they're proud, violence. And then he goes all the way down here. And he says, um, he says, verse uh, 13, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying it's not working for me. I'm trying to serve God, but it's not working for me, okay? He says, for all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. What does that suggest about his sleep? He's not sleeping well, okay? He's going through all kinds of, you know, problems, confusion, doubts, depression maybe. 
And he said, if I speak this, verse 15, behold, I would have been untrue to the generations of your children. He's basically saying, I can't share this with anybody. I can't share this with nobody. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. He can't even self-reflect on this. It's just every time I think about it, it's bringing me down further. Um, and now this is the, it, the, everything pivots on this. Until I went into what, verse 17? Sanctuary of God, into the presence of God. Then I understood. You see, once he draws near to God, he's going to get understanding. Then he says, the wicked, you set them in slippery places. They're going to end up in destruction. <clears throat> but then he finds out something about himself uh, when, when he comes into the very uh, presence of God. Look what he says in verse 22, if somebody could read that. See that? Now, because he's come into the presence of God, he thought he was pretty good before. He says, I've washed my hands in innocent. I'm serving you, Lord, all this. But now he catches a glimpse of God in the sanctuary, and now he understands his true condition. <clears throat> then he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. you. You hold me by your right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. What does he receive then? Once he has acknowledged his own shortcoming and sin by coming into the presence of God. What is he? What is he saying there now? What is he affirming? Huh? He God, God hasn't left him. God is with him. He'll never leave him nor forsake him. You hold me by my right hand. You will future. You have held me by my right hand. You will guide me future by your counsel and afterward receive me to glory eternal. So he he gets a right fix on who he is and his relationship with God. You understand? It's a very important psalm here for people that are going through great difficulty and mental anguish and all other kinds of things to reaffirm, to go into God's presence and reaffirm who is God, who am I, what is my relationship to God, what sins do I have to confess and repent of. It's very, it's very similar where Isaiah is. And then he says, as a result of this, the sum of this is, is uh, verse 28. It is good for me to draw near to God. That's, that's, that's a summary of this experience he's had. I have put my trust in the Lord God. Why? That I might now declare all your works. So 3,000 years later, we're reading about this testimony, this psalmist. That's powerful stretch. I mean, that's quite a communication there, you see. But he first had to have that encounter with God. And then he could be commissioned to tell God's work. Same thing is happening in Isaiah. First, he has to acknowledge his own sin confess it, be purified, and then God commissions him. This process has not changed. You know, just doesn't change. Any thoughts on this Psalm 73? Very important Psalm. Well, they're all important, but I think it's very apropos to the world we live in today. Okay, let's go back to Isaiah. Now he, he's going to encounter this, this remarkable vision. And he says here, for, uh, Verse 5, for I am a man undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Do you think we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips today? Hmm? Think about it. You know, um, who wrote the book? Was it Bloom that wrote the book, uh, uh, The Heart, The Course, what is it? Uh, the American, The Closing of the American Mind. Anybody read that by Bloom? But he talks about what's happened to culture in terms of decline and what words are acceptable now in, in the general culture and communications that would not have been even deemed uh, acceptable for normal uh, conversation. But he says it indicates, as language goes, it's, it's kind of like the canary in the coal mine. It indicates how that culture is, is decreasing more and more. Yes, Ed? conversation or negotiating because it gives effect and impact and really encourage people to try that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was that what was that in the Wall Street Journal? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean that's that's Wall Street Journal that these are authoritative kind of messages, you know, and they're saying that this is appropriate. And listen on TV or cultures, you know, and this whole coarsening of our language 
Uh, of course, Jesus says it's, it's, out of the, it's out of the heart that the mouth speaketh. You know, what's in our heart will come out. And uh, it's, it's not a good indicator, you know. And this is where we're at. And, and the way this keeps going, vulgarity is one thing and it's bad, but when blasphemy is added to that, and the things of God and the things of, you know, uh, using God's name and, and, and all of this is started to add to that, it's really, not a, it's really a, an indicator, so to speak, of, of where we're going in a post-Christian culture. Somebody else had their hand up on this? But I think it's notable that we at least be aware of this. And so he says, but notice he acknowledged he's part of it. He doesn't say, yeah, those guys. Uh, you'll see this with Daniel and others where they say, forgive us, your people. I'm, he, they include themselves in it. I, I, that's very important. Paul says in Ephesians, once we were all sinners. It's not those sinners and I'm here, but this inclusive that we're part of the issue too. I think that's very important for believers to, to realize we're part of this American community. We're part of this problem. But what do we do to move it towards solution? He says, there because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Um, now, I, I just want to go through this for a moment. Um, this is out of Revelation. but The power of the tongue. I just jotted down some of these things. Uh, a good person out of the good treasure of the heart, his heart, produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever comes out of the heart, you know, speaks. They said old-time general practitioner doctors, well, they could examine the tongue. Just by tongue, they could, they could figure out 50 different health indicators of a patient. Those old-time practicing doctors. They could examine the tongue and they could figure out. So the tongue reveals a lot about a person's character. For by, for by death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. By thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Jesus said that. Uh, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with, a, with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You see how important the idea of the mouth, the sanctified mouth, if you will. Uh, that's another topic. Um, so this idea of the tongue, any thoughts on this? This is, this is so powerful when you think about that we as uh, believers have, have the ability, like this morning, to praise God with our tongue, to pray to God with our voice and our lips, but then to share the gospel with our lips, you know, and, and to have sanctified uh, speech. And we have to think about this because it's very empowering. Turn with me just for a moment to James chapter 3. James, book of James, letter James, chapter 3. And he, he gets uh, into this. Uh, and maybe somebody could read uh, verse 1 through 4, please. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. What's he saying there, in your own words? What's he, what's he, what's he saying? Well, tongue is small, but can do a lot of damage. Tongue is small, but I mean, think about in, in relationships or families that you know of, or even churches. What often is the deal? I mean, what causes uh, division or destruction of relationships often? Huh? Somebody said something. You see, somebody said something. And that's something. Uh, a physical wound will heal faster than a verbal wound. And whoever made up that adage, sticks and stones will break my bones with names will never hurt me, doesn't understand the whole concept of bullying. Right? They do hurt. And they, they are long-lasting. And uh, we as believers have to take heed to this because like a little like Isaiah, when the coal is applied to his lips, we should now have sanctified lips because God wants to use us 
uh, to share his message, not just in preaching or teaching, but in, in just general conversation. You know, where he says, let your speech always be salted with grace or speak the truth in love. You see what I'm saying? We should be mindful of how powerful our words really are. Uh, James will go on here in chapter 3. It says, um, uh, every kind of beast, verse 7, uh, and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tame and has been tamed by mankind. Uh, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly, full of deadly poison. Uh, with it we bless God and Father, and with it we curse men and have been made in the dissimilitude of God. But out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. He says, does the spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree brothers bear olives and grapevines bear figs? There's no spring. So he's saying you, we got to be consistent in what, who we are. You know, and if, if the word of God is in us, the love of God is in us, that's going to naturally flow out of our lips, our speech. And then he says, uh, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct um, and do it in meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy, self-seeking, uh, uh, confusion exists, every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing, yielding, full of mercy. Think of a family. I mean, you could put family in either verse 15 or uh, 14. I mean, is there envy? Is there division? Is there bitterness? Is there gossiping? Is there... Uh, you know, attacking, you know, all of this. Or is it peaceable? Is it, you know, is it uh, pure? Is it uh, gentle? Is it respectful? He, this is so practical, what he's telling us here in, in terms of our speech. And one more I want to look at. This has always meant a lot. Um, it's in First uh, Timothy, where he talks about the, Timothy, you know, give yourself to the Word of God. It's First First Timothy chapter 4. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13 says, Paul says to Timothy, Till I come, give attention to reading and to exhortation to doctrine. Kind of like what we're doing this morning. You, know, you come to church, you know, you hear the word of God, we discuss the word of God here. He says we should give attention to that. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which is given to you by the prophecy with the laying out of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Now meditate inwardly. Think about these things. Ponder these things. Verse 15. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. So the interior spiritual life you have, you meditate on God's word, you're hearing God's word, you obey. Even though it's in internal, it's going to be manifest that even other people will see it. Does that make sense? It's eternal. Other people will see your change in character. But verse 16 is the one I like. He says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, or the word, the word of God and obeying it. Continue in them, for in doing this you will both save yourself and who those that hear you now that's powerful that god would choose us as human instruments to speak that it could change people's lives for eternity you know now i mean we just went through billy graham's funeral you know this we were overseas so i didn't see much of it but here's a man whose words uh, touch nations literally and I personally know people whose lives were flipped upside down and transformed. Uh, they're still serving God today from what happened in Cleveland when this man spoke uh, back in 1994. You see, now that, that's a big scale. But each one of us, if we will follow this advice here, will have the ability to speak and, to, and by God's grace and his Holy Spirit to see a life changed forever. Does that make, I mean, that's what it's saying here. Any thoughts on this? This is a powerful uh, kind of truth that's revealed to us here. Yes, please. Is there an element of the image of God? Pardon me? Is there an element of the image of God who speaks to create? He considered some of that is, is, is in affairs that when we speak, we have the ability to create or destroy. God's not destroying this world. Yeah, what do you think of that? Any thoughts on that? That's a very good comment. What do you think? The fact that man is made in you, yes, too. Jesus 
is the communication of God. Mm -hmm. He's the word of God. So clearly that shows the importance of how we communicate, and that it's powerful. And this is saying either way, whether you're speaking the truth or you're speaking evil things, it's extraordinary power. Yeah, the, power. the power of life and death, this idea of, you know, one of the things is to, to go into the image of a, you know, the image of God, that's that why are we different than animals or sun, moon, the stars, the rabbit, or the tree? Well, we're made in God's image. There's many ways we reflect in God's image, but one of the ways is we have the capacity to speak. And, and early on, we see God speaking to man. Adam, you'll do this, you're responsible for that, do this, don't do that. Adam's responding to him, conversing. That's powerful. Uh, sometimes in the hustle and bustle of 20, we don't realize the power uh, we have being made in the image of God to uh, be his body here on the earth and to speak for him, so to speak. You know, I mean, we, 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 we share his word uh, with others uh, because, again, we're made in the image of God. Therefore, we reflect this. Just like we have the capacity for love. Well, that's, that comes from God. We have the capacity uh, to self-reflect. You know, like the, the parable of the prodigal son. It says that he came to his senses. You know, and he, he wants to change life, transformation. Uh, we have the capacity to forgive. Think about that. I don't, I don't think you're going to get this in the animal world. I mean, they're kind of wired, you know, to do what they do kind of thing. But we have the thing, somebody hits you. Or we have the response. We have the response that maybe I won't be reflexive and just do this, which is very natural. But I'll take the hit, as Jesus said. They slap you here, take the hit. If they insult you here, return blessing. So we have that almost godlike nature in us. Yes, please. There's also I can't remember the Bible, but if you're married to someone who isn't, yeah, then your actions might bring that person. Yeah, First Peter chapter 3 says if, if you have an unbelieving spouse just by your behavior without speaking a word, you might be able to see that person coming. Because they'll see something different about you. How many ever saw the movie Sergeant York? Sergeant York. You've got to see that movie. Only because of Gary Cooper you should see it. But anyhow, uh, but he, this man's life was transformed and I think it's a 19... 50 film, but it shows him coming to Christ and his life and people recognize that in his life. And it comes through really clearly in the film, but they recognize that, you know, especially the way he spoke. He was angry before, he's gentle now. He was accusatory before, he's forgiving now. You see, that's very, very powerful. Anyone? Yes, please. He says, watch your life. A little bit louder, please. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it talks in Ephesians that God has given us, you know, pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, all this, that the body of Christ may be built up, strengthened, that they won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There's a lot going on in Christendom today uh, that is, uh, again, it's coming here. It, it's not new. You know, it was in the early church. That's why so many of the letters, the epistles, were written against false doctrine that was creeping in. Legalism, Gnosticism, hedonism, all these things were starting to creep in. But uh, that doesn't change. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan tries to get in. He's going to come in. You know, he, he's the father of lies. So why not get a little in there? You know, but what's the antidote for a lie? The truth. You see, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. We gotta know this. I mean, we gotta know what we know going into this 21st century because there's all kinds of. Uh, we have the ability to travel a little bit, be in different venues, and there's some strange winds of doctrine, not out there, but in the church, coming in. Would you believe it? I mean, in our own lifetime, we've seen denominations go shipwreck. Am I right? Because they lost their compass. They don't know what, you know what's up, what's down, what's you know. It's going to continue. But again, this is, this is not new. It's just what it is. That's why it says in Jude, verse 3, contend for the faith that once for all was delivered to the saints. You have to, like, 
struggle with it. You know, you have to hold fast to that because we got to pass that off to the next generation. And the next generation. If we let it slip, we let it slip. It goes into the dark ages. Superstition rises up and all other kinds of manner of being, behavior. We saw this even in our trip in Israel. You see places where in uh, north, I'll show you a picture of this, up in, up in Dan, the northern way up towards Lebanon, uh, you see, we actually saw the altar where they said they don't want to go to Jerusalem, they want to worship Heaven. They set up an altar. Thousands, hundreds of thousands would come there and worship a false deity. That was a tribe of Jacob. That was Dan. And uh, I'll show you the actual altar, what's left of the altar from that, that period of time. They just drifted. They just drifted. It's easy to drift. You know? You know? M most failures in the Christian life is not a result of a slow, of a blowout. It's a slow leak. You know? Just a little here, a little there, a little there. A little false doctrine, a little false doctrine. It's like baking a cake. You know, you get the right eggs, sugar, flour, everything is in there. And at the very end, you put in a little pinch of arsenic. Is that a good cake? Probably not. Okay. So, <laughs> okay, I'll start wrapping this up. We'll go back to Isaiah. Um, so here, uh, he's going to be, he does something really I think significant here. Number one, he acknowledges he, he's convicted of his own sin. I think that's very important. This conviction he has leads to confession. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. You see, it leads to confession. And then it leads to cleansing. And here's where we see, then one of the seraphim, verse 6 of Isaiah, flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Interesting that there's an altar in heaven. Again, this is consistent with Revelation in other places. He says, uh, Revelation 8.3, you see this idea of an altar. He says, and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity has taken away, and your sins purged. See, he's cleansed by something from the altar. You see, he's cleansed by something from the altar. And just like we're cleansed, Jesus says in John chapter 17, uh, sanctify them by the truth. And then he says what? Thy word is truth. How are we sanctified? How are we touched with the coal from the altar, so to speak, uh, in our own lives is uh, by the word of God. You see, like the psalmist says, thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. Uh, the Word of God will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Word of God. It's just what it is. It's just how it is. But now he's cleansed and now he's going to be commissioned. It's that you see that kind of process. God cannot send this man out with a prophetic message if he has unclean lips. It's just not going to work. And um, so he says here, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, we're going to develop this doctrine of the Trinity later on in Isaiah when it's more specific. But we, we think back to Genesis, let us make man in our image. Then he made them in his image singular. So you see this, like a plurality, then singularity tells you something about the Godhead. Okay, we're going to learn more. But here's, uh, just like at the Tower of Battle, God says, let us go down and see what man is getting himself into. So here you see this idea of something plural going on here. He says, um, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I like this. And then, then he said, here am I, send me. You know, that's, wow, you know, this is really uh, echoed down through all church history where somebody stands up and they're going to do what God's called them to do. You know, here I am, send me. And now he's ready to be commissioned. And uh, the one that always strikes me is uh, a little from a Carol's message this morning where they go across the Sea of Galilee to what side of the sea? Other side. Other side. Well, whose side was that on the other side? Huh? The Gentile. She got part of the storm. I had to come in and prep for this class. Did, did, did she get to what he, she, he... Why did he go to the other side? She, okay, let's do this because I think it's very important. This will be sermon point B. Um, <laughs> but it fits. It fits with Isaiah. It fits with this. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. So what does he go through to get to that other side? He goes through a storm. The waves, the winds are blowing. Everything is going this way and that way. And so 
then, of course, he, he delivers them out of this, the apostles, he, and he stills the storm, he quiets things down. They come to the shore of the Gentiles. Okay, we were just there, the Gentile side. And who does he encounter there? We won't read the whole thing, but just, you know, huh? what's, what's this man's condition? How would you describe this guy? Yeah, okay, he's demonized. Just, just read that quickly, tell me something. Okay. He has a demon. Not a demon, he has a demon. What else? Huh? He's chained. He's chained? What does he do with the chain? Broken. He breaks him. So the best thing man can do with him is chain him. And that don't work. He's isolated. He's isolated. <laughs> what does that suggest? Where is he living? What's his home? He's in a cemetery. That's where he thinks that's what he calls home. What else? Oh, anything? Out and cuts himself. What is that? <coughs> yes. huh? so. He's in pain. He's in pain. And he's self-destructive. Bad happens, to say the least. There's a lot of bad happens. A lot of bad happens. <laughs> a lot of issues. Okay. Uh, uh, he's also lonely. He's alone. He's alone. It says day and night, does it not? Yes. Remember Psalm 73? He says morning and evening. I mean, he's not sleeping well. He's troubled. I mean, you can go down and down the list, but he's totally isolated. He's totally alone. He's probably on the social register of the day on the bottom, bottom rock. Jesus goes across the lake. What he delivers him, and then it says something very important here. Verse 15, uh, verse 15 says, Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed, and have a legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. What does that tell you about him now? Peace. He's at peace. He's sitting. <clears throat> clothed means he's socially appropriate. He's, 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 he's normalized, if you will. But he's also, he's in his right mind. See? You know, this idea. He's, he's now, he, he, his life was totally out of harmony before. And now Jesus came and like with one touch, he's, he's, he's brought this man's life into high order. And then it says, that what is, what is he, um, he wants to follow Jesus. He's got a purpose in life. Just like Isaiah, he, he's a little like Isaiah when he's all cleaned up. He's kind of saying, I'll go, I'll go with you, I'll go. What do you want me to do now? You see, he's got a purpose. His life's trajectory has changed after he's met Jesus. And of course, Jesus says what? Go home, tell you, he commissions him. He could, he's sending him. See how he's going to send Isaiah? He's sending this man. Well, this guy is like us in many ways. I mean, you know, before we're saved, we're living in a cemetery. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. All have come short of the glory of God. That's why we need to be born again. We're dead. We're chained. We've got some habits or some kind of thing. As it says in Romans chapter 12, lay aside every weight of sin that so easily change you or bound you. Uh, we can be in a big high society or anything else, but we're often isolated if we're not before we come to Christ. Cemetery, we're going to pain, we might have whatever, purpose in life, direction, all of these kind of things. But when Jesus comes, what does he do? He leaves the friendly shore, heaven, the Philippians 2, he comes all the way down and goes through a storm of suffering, anguish, and everything else. And he reaches you and he reaches me. And he delivers us, he heals us, gets in the right mind, it commissions us. As my Father has sent me, what does he say? Even so I send you. See? But you see this pattern is rather consistent. Any thought on this, in these kinds of... It's beautiful when you see, I mean, the scripture is, it reminds me of opening the back. Remember they used to have Swiss watches before everything went digital or electronic or whatever it is? But my dad used to like watches. You pull the back off. Remember, you see all these wheels turn it, and then you'd have these little emeralds or these little jewels in them. That's like the Bible. You pull the back off it, you see Isaiah, everything clicks together. That's why I think Carol said this morning, no man could have written this. No group of men could have written this book. Just can't do it. Okay, go back to Isaiah and I'll wrap this up here. <laughs> um, okay, so then he says, Here then I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people 
Keep on hearing, but they do not understand. Keep on seeing, but they do not perceive. Make their hearts of the people dull and their ears heavy. They shall shut their eyes, lest they hear with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart. He's going to be dealing with three things here. We're going to pick this up next week. Ears, eyes, and heart. The ears, the eyes, and the heart. And he's going to, he has both these things in a kind of a pattern, if we were to graph this out. And then he says, Lord, how long? What we're going to see here is that um, this verses here will be used six times in the New Testament. Hearing, they won't hear. Seeing, they won't see. They won't understand. It'll be used six times. We'll look at this next week. Six times in the New Testament. But what's really one of the significances about this, and I'll close on this. If you turn to John chapter 12 for a moment, and we'll, this will be our final verse. Remembering what Isaiah is saying here 700 years before Christ. If you look at um, Isaiah chapter 12, <clears throat> I'm sorry, John chapter 12. Yeah, it's my last verse, whatever. Okay. <laughs> John chapter 12. Um, he, he says in verse 40, let's uh, pick it up in verse, uh, verse 38. John chapter 12, verse 38. <coughs> verse 37 says, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. This is what we're reading about in Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah again said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke to him. You see what Jesus, he's saying, in a sense, Isaiah has seen the glory of God, right? In Isaiah chapter 6. He's seeing, um, in a sense, a manifestation of Christ back in that, that throne room imagery that, that he's getting there. And then Jesus is taking those very words and putting it right before the people. He's done these miracles, he's done these sermons, he's done all this fulfillment of prophecy. And he's saying, you don't get it, you don't see it, you don't hear it. And that's exactly what Isaiah said 700 years before. And as a result of that, destruction is coming. You understand? Why don't you come to me, be healed, be saved, be whole, all of this stuff. And this message is so consistent, but Jesus, what I call, cuts and pastes. He takes it and applies it to himself here. This phrase is used six times in the New Testament. We're going to see this. Yes, yeah. My version says, That's it. Uh, that's why in, Jane, in John we'll say, we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Son. When Jesus comes, that's the glory of God revealed on earth. You know, and again, we'll get into this more as we get further on in Isaiah. Any closing thoughts before we close? Does, do you see how Isaiah kind of is unfolding here? He's moving forward. Next week, it starts the whole thing with the promise of the virgin birth in chapter 7. And then we're off. You know, to this whole thing of the Messiah that's coming. Yes, please. Um, I'm going back a little bit for one. When God said, Who can I send in Isaiah? Yeah. Was it because, like in the Garden of Eden, he said, Where are you, Adam? Even though he knew. Mm. At the same time, did God say this so that Isaiah would go on, would be that one? Or was he really, because you said some. Often the question he's asking is not for him, that he doesn't know. It's more for us to let yeah. us know. Here's a rule of thought. When God asks a question in the scripture, he's not looking for new information. <laughs> he knows. He knows, you know, what he says, like Jesus says, well, how long has the boy been in this condition? The father said to her. He, he knows that. Or he says, who touched me? You know, the woman. He knows. You know, he's omniscient. He's omniscient. So when God asks for a question, he's not looking for new information. He's setting something up. He's, set, he's looking for a response, but he's not looking for new information. Yeah, or he's looking for a certain response. But he knows what it's about. You know. And is it so that Isaiah would take on his heavy task because he volunteered for it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to send you John. Yeah. Is that how 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the, that was the thing with the early church. I mean, what he commissions Paul or all of them, he says, you know, I'm going to send you now. I'm sending you out into this world. Go. You know, and they accepted that. You know, the world's never been the same. Huh? So, well, yeah, I mean, in a sense, he's sending us back, you know, we come here and we get spiritual nourishment and everything, and we go out into our worlds. Some of us go further than others of us, but we're all going into our worlds, our communities, our families, our work relationships. Well, how do we represent God? How are we the Isaiah in that venues, even though they don't hear, they don't listen, they don't, but we still faithfully present the message. Yeah, I mean, depends. God, God uses every tool in the tool base. He didn't knock on the door gently when he got Paul. <laughs> sometimes he does, sometimes it's just like in our life. If I went around this room and asked how you come to Christ, some of us came to Christ at a very early age on a bright and sunny day singing Jesus loves me in, in nursery. Others of us, we were in a car wreck and we're laying on the side of the road and we're looking up and we're crying. Yeah, yeah. Man, I, I just think, you know, there's all different avenues to the cross. You know, there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. But there's many ways to Jesus. Am I right? <laughs> okay. Uh, who would like to close us in a word of prayer, please?